Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Ken Shelton. He has his master's in education with a specialization in education technology and media design and production. He's worked as an educator for over 20 years and spent most of his career in a classroom teaching technology at the middle school level. And as part of his active involvement within the educational technology community, he is an Apple Distinguished Educator, a Microsoft Innovative Educator Expert, and a Google Certified Innovator. Ken has also worked extensively at the policy level with a number of state departments of education, ministries of education, and nonprofits. So I'm very excited to welcome Ken to the program today. All right. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your journey in education. I feel like I met you, gosh, I feel like we met like 10 years ago at a Q event. And I know a little bit about kind of your trajectory in education, but I'd love for you to share it with people listening. Oh, perfect. So we did. Actually, I want to say we might have met before Q, but we had an opportunity to have dialogue at Q. And it happened to coincide with you being the Thursday night keynote. Yeah. Well, and I was in one of your huge room sessions about media and technology and was like fascinated by the whole thing. And actually, you know what I remember you saying, which totally cracked me up because I am not a Comic Sans person. You made some joke about using that font and I was like dying in my seat laughing very inappropriately in a very large room crammed with people watching your presentation. Oh, yeah. That's that's still one of my favorite presentations, although it's updated now um, to do. But yeah, no, my journey to education is, um, you know, it's not direct. I I literally had zero interest in working in education uh, in the work that I do, especially the diversity, equity, inclusion work that I do. One of my favorite uh, stereotype threats to dismantle is I share with uh, the cohorts or share with the group that I am not the first in my family to go to college. I'm, I'm a fourth generation in my family to go to college. Hmm. So, uh, so that, and there's always a shock value with that with, wait a minute, fourth. And I'm like, yeah. And also hmm. if I were to show you my uh, ancestral history, uh, I'm also fourth generation from uh, the enslavement of my ancestors as well. Oh, wow. So, so you have to juxtapose the, European blood that's in my DNA with the uh, sub-Saharan West African blood, and then, of course, connect the dots to why is it that I'm the fourth generation of my family uh, to attend college. But ultimately, after I graduated from UCLA and tried to play professional football, I did acting and modeling for uh, quite a long time. And my father uh, was a assistant superintendent for a county office of education here in California. And he basically gave me another variation of the talk uh, (laughs) saying you need to find something that is going to be fulfilling and a little bit more sustainable and stable than constantly going to auditions and you get a work here, work there, big work here, small work there. And so ultimately I started as a substitute teacher and I figured if I'm going to do this, I might as well get all my credentials and degrees in place. And that way I, I can do it as a career if I'd like but I also still want to continue being able to do acting and modeling. So the convergence ultimately um, occurred after I got my master's degree. I had already been working as a substitute teacher, doing a lot of long-term sub positions, which really framed my understanding of different content areas. I mean, I long-term sub-taught everything from art to algebra one, to algebra two, to physical education. uh, culinary arts, which was one of my favorites. Uh, this, by the way, on a side note, that's why I'm such a staunch advocate for CTE programs as well. Yep. And so my certifications ended up being in uh, secondary English and social studies. And so ultimately, I'd reached a point where I got tired of the games of Hollywood, where you go to audition after audition after audition, getting rejected 99.9% of the time. And I just felt I wanted to have something that served, had a more fulfilling purpose for me. And that's where I dove uh, all in with education and and um, never looked back. Um, but I do think it's important to mention, especially given the title of the podcast, that I, I only lasted 18 years in the classroom. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to touch on that a little bit later, because I do think it's an important part of my journey in education uh, for the audience as to why I'm no longer in the classroom. 
All right. We'll definitely talk about that. And I have to second your CTE endorsement. I have my CTE credential and I'm such a big advocate for that as well. I love the whole idea of pathways. I personally think that CTE programs should be implemented and expanded and at least one CTE course should be required uh, in order to graduate. Yeah. Oh, I think it would be. I just think it makes the learning so much more interesting and relevant for kids. I, I, I would totally agree with that statement. Yeah. So I know, okay, first of all, you're, you primarily worked with middle school students, correct? Most of my career was middle school. I taught high school. Uh, and again, this kind of even points to my experiences as a, for your audience as a black male educator. Uh, I taught high school for two years and all it took was one comment from a colleague. Wow, Mr. Sheldon, you're awfully friendly with the students. And that was my cue to leave. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Because I was going to ask, like, what do you like about middle school students? But maybe it's more just the staff as well on a middle school campus that you... No, just as bad. No. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I remember. Uh-oh. So my, my certification is secondary. So it was either going to be high school or middle school. Right. And uh, I, to be honest with you, I really enjoy teaching high school, especially 11th and 12th graders, because mm-hmm. their minds have... You know, they're in the latter part of their teen years and their their perspectives on things and their minds are beginning to mold how they see things. And I just enjoyed that degree of dialogue. But I also recognize that your during your middle school experience, those are critical years mm-hmm. as far as setting you up for what's going to happen in your high school experience. So it was going to be secondary no matter what. I just happened to be fortunate at the time to transfer to a middle school that one, I could combine my love of educational technology. I had the freedom to essentially do more or less what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I already had my CTE certification at the time as well. And so it was just a nice fit for me at that particular middle school, which was the last school that I worked at. Yeah, no, that autonomy is so critical. People would ask me all the time why I stayed at the high school I was at for as many years as I did. And I think it was just that, having the freedom to kind of do what I wanted in my classroom. And it was really exciting. So I totally get that. And so in addition to your work in classrooms, you've worked a lot with state departments, ministries of education at the policy level, which I think is so exciting because I've been that teacher in a classroom trying to, you know, kind of push change from the bottom up. And sometimes it just feels impossible. So I'd love for you to share, like, what do you feel like are some of the biggest challenges facing educational institutions? Like what systematic issues and imbalances did you you encounter in some of that policy work? Like, I'd love to hear about any and all of it. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I'm, I I love doing policy level work. Um, I have been fortunate to work with quite a few state departments of ed. And as you put ministries of education, um, nonprofits across the board, because ultimately for me, my whole thing is when you look about when you look at education and you consider even what you just shared, Policy is going to dictate how high the ceiling is, how low the floor is, and how wide the guardrails are. Mm. And so, and this is precisely why I encourage educators to begin to shift the narrative around things like disruption. Um, I don't believe in disruption at all. In fact, I reject the use of that word. If you think about how disruption is defined, it is a temporary change. Mm. The example I use with educators is when you think in terms of a disruptive student, there's a temporary change to something that's going on and you engage in whatever steps, resource, uh, steps, actions, and utilize whatever resources necessary to redirect things back to the way they were. Mm-hmm. And that's why for me, my approach around a lot of our legacy systems, institutions, and policies is uh, dismantle and abolish. Mm-hmm. So one big thing for me is, for example, as much as you and I, for example, are big educational technology advocates, I fully recognize that the guardrails are, you can get a device, but that doesn't guarantee you access. And that access has to start with infrastructure and that infrastructure has to come from a policy level. And so when I was on uh, the California State Superintendent's Educational Technology Task Force, uh, one of the things that we looked at was the the broadband infrastructure here in California. Mm -hmm. Because you see a school district can go one-to-one, but all you're doing is accentu- uh, is highlighting, accentuating, and, and perpetuating an inequity the minute that child takes a device home and they don't have internet access. Right. And so that's where the policy level comes in because you have to guarantee a minimum baseline standard. Why is it that I can go to different parts of various states and even countries, and even with my cell phone, my signal might be good or I might not have a signal at all. 
And that goes back to even with COVID, where I know a lot of superintendents, many were friends of mine, that were handing out hotspots to kids, and they were engaging what I identify as educational triage. And it was like, good, that's a stopgap measure. But have you considered the fact that how do you know those kids are going to even have a strong signal with the hotspot? What happens if you have multiple children in the same household that are all in class together? I said, you have to follow up by telling the teachers, look, you need to be mindful of using high bandwidth platforms or applications because even with those, it's going to be limited and you're going to have a disparity in learner access and learner experiences. Many of my friends that are superintendents of rural school districts, they don't even have broadband access. Yeah. And so this, the, the, the whole idea around the policy level stuff is things like, what is the baseline standard around things like our infrastructure and our access? The other thing for me is around things like the representations amongst the teacher workforce. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's important, as I shared while I'm no longer in a classroom, it's not a coincidence, and unfortunately that pattern still exists, that I was the only black male educator at every single school that I worked at as a sub and as a full-time teacher. So even going back to that comment that was made to me at that high school, I, I, just, I just knew, like, the minute that comment is made, I'm like, okay, I know what can happen next. The comment then gets repeated to an administrator. I'm already guilty by default. And, and then I'm going to have to go through survival mode yet again. So I'm going to leave now. And when you think in terms of the lack of diversity within the educated workforce across the board, that's a policy level thing. What's going on with supporting? Well, actually, I'll even go back to our own schooling experience. If you don't have teachers that look like you, then you're not likely to want to pursue a career uh, in something that there's no representations you can immediately identify with. Exactly. So that's the whole idea around, uh, you know, representation. Then, you know, for me in my credential program, I was the only one. So if you're constantly operating in spaces where you're the only one or your physical presence is tokenized, uh, you're not likely to want to be in those spaces and you're likely to uh, find alternatives or disengage from them. Now, how do you fix that? Well, you can recruit mm-hmm. educators and recruit for a diverse workforce, but what are the policies in place around the financial and human investment in that recruitment, the financial and human investment in not just the recruitment, but the retention, and then what are the policy level things in place around the supports? Otherwise, and I, I shared this with some of the advisement I did for a state assembly member, because here in California, there is a bill uh, that has made it out of committee that they're looking at to address that very thing is you also have to consider the environments that that you want to recruit and retain educators of color in because the last thing you'd want to do and I quote this is a quote from one of my personal heroes James Baldwin the last thing you want to do is integrate one of us into a burning house and did you see so I know you're talking about the bill in California did you see like important conversations like moving forward on these things do you feel like they were stalling like what do you feel like what do you think were the best solutions in those conversations to work toward positive change in some of these areas? Well, the first part is the investment. I mean, ultimately, you can put something on paper, and if you don't have uh, investment, measures of progress, and measures of accountability in place, then it's it's not even worth the paper it's written on. Uh, and by the way, it's not even just California. There's quite a few other states that I have either done advisement in, or I know folks that are um, that are in an advisory role for the exact same thing. And so, really, it's looking at it's looking at three major areas. It's looking at what is the what is the catalyst for the pattern and why does it endure? How might those resources and supports be in place to begin to dismantle that pattern? Mm-hmm. And then what needs to be in place to ensure longevity and success? So, for example, here in California, it's things like what are you doing to support the existing educators that are in classrooms, that are in administrative positions? Mm-hmm. What are you doing to encourage and support higher ed programs to actively recruit for the next generation of the uh, you know diversity of the educator workforce, and then how are you putting that in place around things like um, you know DEI training? And I don't mean performative DEI training where it's a checkbox, but but again, it's like how my big thing with school districts and even with my advisory is how are you encouraging and supporting existing educators to be able to dismantle uh, their own biases, their own stereotypes, their own stereotype threats that serve as a catalyst for making meaningful cross-cultural connections with their colleagues, how does that, how does that show up in the ways in which you um, 
introduce and, and teach the curriculum. And then now when you have diversity of representations and not just a curriculum that you're engaged with the learners, you're also doing the personal work yourself. And then there's policy back behind it around, you know, for example, here in California, it was about a year ago, our State Department of Ed launched a grant program that I, it's, it's why I'm working with several school districts here in California, and it was around DEI training. Mm-hmm. And they basically didn't see that's a policy thing. They said, look, we know that this is important. We know that there are some districts that can afford it. We know that there's some that are that cannot. So we're going to launch a grant program so that all districts can apply for it. And the ones get awarded the grant, it's specific to that training. You see, now you have the policy behind it, the financial investment behind it. And then in the case with the district, since I, I worked with them on their grant applications, you have the individual investment behind it that supports the work. Yeah. So you have to all these things working in conjunction to really make a positive impact for sure. Correct. And how has that been supporting, you know, different districts, different campuses in this kind of diversity, equity, inclusion training? Like what what has been some of your takeaways from that experience working with just such diverse groups of teachers? Uh, the word I would use is empowerment. It's it's. um I think it's an experience that all of us that are educators, whatever your role in education is, that you ideally can be aware of as often as possible. When I look at when I look at the faces of folks in my different cohorts, and it happens in varying degrees and at different intervals. You know, as you and I both know, we don't all learn at the same pace. We don't learn at the same rate. Um, in some cases, it takes longer to process. Some people are able to process things faster. But just that whole, that, that, that empowerment epiphany where the dialogue changes and it's like, man, now I see exactly what's going on. Now I understand my role. Now I understand things that I've done before. It's, it's precisely why I always share a poem before every single engagement I have with all the cohorts I work with. It's called An Invitation to a Brave Space. And it, I share with them stories around why I reject the phrase safe space and how I've been in situations where safe space was weaponized. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea is to acknowledge and recognize that all of us are operating within systems and institutions that in some cases uh, create inequities or create hierarchies by design. Mm-hmm. And the first step is to develop an awareness around what is the system I'm operating in? How am I perpetuating things that um that endure the inequities, and how might I begin to go against that, which goes back to what I shared before, and that is the dismantle. And so when I see folks that they start to recognize those things, and and they're like, man, now I see this, now I see that, now I understand the terminology, now I can utilize the terminology within the context of my dialogue, both on a personal level and on a professional level, that's powerful. That's the stuff that I want. That's the that's the learning that I want to be a facilitator and a catalyst for. Not my main thing with all my cohorts is I need to I need to be a catalyst for your own empowerment, for your own growth. I'm not going to be your savior and I'm not going to make it to where you have to rely upon me for things. We are working on this together. I happen to have an expertise and an experience, but by no means am I uh, an expert and I don't have all the answers, but ideally in the context of us working together, we can identify sustainable pathways towards answers for now, answers for the immediate future, and you will be empowered to engage in the continued growth because I always say it's a marathon, not a sprint, but the big reveal is that there really is no finish line. Yeah. Being an educator, I've been in trainings as well where you just have those moments where you you see you see things differently, your perspective shifts and it just changes the way you approach, you know, your interactions with other people, whether it's students or colleagues. So I'm that's pretty powerful work that you're doing. Yeah, you know, and the question I always ask is is the following. I ask two questions usually, but the most important aligned with what you just shared is. I always introduce it by saying I would want every educator to maintain an awareness around the five core tenets of a critical consciousness, which are love, hope, faith, critical thinking, and humility. Uh, And I say, if you consider yourself a lifelong learner, then that is one of the first steps towards that humility. But the bigger question is, when you are introduced with new information that forces you to examine and interrogate your own thoughts and your own actions based on the experiences that you had prior to that. 
Do you lean into that information, process it, and recognize that this is something of value for me to be able to uh, engage, uh, examine for my own growth? Or do you reject it because it troubles what your previous stream of thought was, and it might even force you to interrogate your own previous actions? Yeah. And I love that you use the phrase, like, I always think of teachers as the lead learner, right? And that just doesn't mean learning about a content area. It doesn't mean just learning about technology, but it's always, it's us learning about ourselves and how we approach things and why we make the decisions we do and why we interact with people in certain ways. And there's always so much room to grow. And I know sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's so important for us to be modeling that growth for all the people around us, but specifically for our students as well. Right. Yeah, if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. Oh, totally. So one of the things that's been a challenging aspect of my own work, and and we kind of chatted about this prior to starting the recording, is obviously I'm a big advocate for blended learning. Um, And in the last year and a half, you know, with this shift online, shift into kind of hybrid schedules, more people interested in blended learning, I've been worried about the range of kind of equity issues that have been exacerbated because of, you know, this this embracing of a blend of online and offline, and then for a while, just exclusively online. So I'm curious, what are some of your biggest or have been your biggest concerns in the last two years as online learning has become, you know, one, a necessity when, you know, schools close, but even now as we're trying to figure out how do we continue to use technology and online learning to complement those face-to-face interactions? Yeah. <laughs> we can't record for three hours. I know. I'm sorry. I mean, ultimately, uh, no, it's okay. I mean, ultimately, for me, my biggest concerns go back to kind of what we shared a short time ago is a lack of infrastructure in the first place. Uh, I remember in my uh, graduate school, in my master's degree program, um, and in fact, this is one of the narratives that I'm including in the book that I'm writing right now, is um, it was back in 08. So here's one for you. Do you remember Second Life? (laughs) Yes, I do. Okay. So I remember the professor was like, because the the class was around um, instructional design, but computer-based instructional design. Mm -hmm. So how do you design instruction that is solely... Uh, consumable and interactionable, if you are interactable, uh, in a computer-based environment. Mm-hmm. And so we use Second Life. And I remember the professor back then, and I think it's important for me to stress the year, this was back, and maybe it was 07. This professor was like, oh, this is going to revolutionize education. It's going to change things. It's going to do this. going to do that. And blah, 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 blah. And so, of course, for me, I was just like, okay, I'm going to trouble this narrative. And uh, (laughs) I didn't have the phrase then that I do now to borrow from the immortal words of the late John Lewis. I was getting in good trouble. (laughs) I raised my hand. Now, I think it's important for me to mention it again. Remember, I'm the only black male student in the whole program. Mm -hmm. Okay, So I raised my hand. And uh, again, my awareness now is very different. uh, And my terminology is different. But there was the, you know, the subtle eye roll, which think about that already. Mm -hmm. I'm a student in class and I'm raising my hand to ask a question in a master's degree program. And the professor, their their, their immediate nonverbal communication to me is that very subtle but noticeable eye roll. Okay, so that's a microaggression already. Now, the professor says, what's your question? And I say, well... How is it going to revolutionize education when I currently have students that don't even have internet access at home? Mm-hmm. Think about all the barriers to entry. You have to have a device first. It has to have enough horsepower and memory to be able to run the program. And you have to have the right degree of internet access to be able to engage in the program in the first place. I have students that don't even have internet access in the home. So how is it going to revolutionize education? And of course, it was met with, unfortunately, going back to what you and I were talking about a minute ago, not with humility. Mm -hmm. It was met with uh, what I describe as coercive control. Well, that's for you to figure out. I'm the one with the doctorate and you aren't. And I say that it's going to revolutionize. Oh, yeah. Oh, my (laughs) goodness. Wow. I could have just left it at that. But then I responded by saying, oh, really? I said, well, I, here's one for you. I will bet you my grade in class 
that if you come and spend one class period with my student, you wouldn't be able to connect with him because clearly you have no idea what's really going on with kids in schools today. Yeah. And uh, and it's and by the way, it's not a coincidence that for my on my transcripts from my master's program, only one class that I get a B in. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my biggest concerns around online is the is the lack of infrastructure that exists. I do think that if we if we guaranteed the baseline and had it, think about what it does. Now, here's where I even talk about policy and equity. Lots and lots of school districts that I know, superintendents, cabinet members, things like that. They are in geographical locations where they, for example, they cannot hire teachers to have a robust academic program. And when I say robust, I'm talking about the breadth of courses that are offered. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that I encourage them, again, policy level, adopt, and especially board policy, how do you actively dismantle that to where it's sustainable? Well, one is, for example, engaging in dual enrollment agreements with junior colleges mm-hmm. or community colleges. So, for example, if I don't have, um, I'll just say I can't hire a calculus teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, that shouldn't be a barrier for the student. So how might you engage in a dual enrollment partnership with a community college where they do have calculus? Right. And and the thing for me here in California, and again, going back to policy, uh, it's in the ed code. If you are under the age of 18, you can take a community college class for free. Is that true? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. It's in the ed code. <gasps> That's exciting. Yeah. So I, I I don't think you know this about me. I was an application reader for UCLA for seven years. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so what that did, and, and the catalyst for me applying to become an application reader was back in 2003, when there were only 200 African-American incoming freshmen to UCLA, and that included the recruited athletes. Oh, Wow. So I was like, you know what, I can be a sideline, uh, you know, be a complainer from the sidelines, or I can uh, take the initiative to find out how I, how I might be actively involved. And ultimately, I got connected with uh, um, the uh, head of admissions and relations with schools at the time, and I applied and I became an application reader. So I saw the secret sauce. I saw mm. the problematic component of the demographic uh, representation of the readers my first year and how it shifted by my seventh year. It was more representational of the demographics of the state of California. But I also learned all of those little things, like even something as simple as that. And that's precisely why I would encourage my students to not play the AP game. I said, don't play that AP game. It's garbage. And, and I'll tell you why it's garbage. And I explained to them why it's garbage. And I'm like, your better option is to take a class at the local community college. For one, it's free. Mm-hmm. For two, it looks good on your college tra- application because it shows that you have challenged yourself academically. And I said, now let me tell you the real benefit. If you take that community college class and you get an A, you are guaranteed transferability of those units and you already have an A on your college transcript before you even set foot on a college campus. Yeah. I go, that AP exam, who knows how many units you're going to get. <laughs> Yeah. And I go, but I will tell you this much, you won't get enough units to replace a course. Right. No matter what. So again, going back to your question, I mean, all of those things are, are what I would say preliminary examples of the online equation. But, but added to that are things like how often have we seen, and I know this to be true during my classroom time, how often are educators provided professional growth opportunities to, re- to understand, and I know you know this because you're the expert in it, <laughs> learning in a synchronous environment is not the same as learning in an asynchronous environment. It requires a different structure, different design, and there are different mechanisms for communication. And you have to become aware of the fact that there are barriers even to that. And how do you anticipate barriers to entry, whether it's um, uh, you know, learner exceptionalities, um, uh, connectivity barriers, uh, even in uh, when I even talk to teachers around, you know, how might learners engage in the content differently? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that you can anticipate that could serve as a barrier for that engagement? Yeah, that's a question that I feel like I spend so much time talking with teachers about right now, which is really stopping to think about and identify the barriers to engagement, participation, access, all of these things, like almost every instructional strategy, every avenue we might present to kids is going to present 
somebody with a barrier. And like, how do we think about that? How do we design to try to mitigate or eliminate those things? And and even if it's just simply through really prioritizing student choice and agency, so we're not always asking them to like walk the same path to get somewhere. But yeah, there's so many barriers. And I don't know that educators are really stopping to think about that and how hard it makes for so many kids to access the learning and feel confident and successful navigating tasks. Well, and I'll add one more layer to what you're sharing because I'm in full agreement. Um, I, This is why I asked the question also, how often are the educators even provided with professional growth opportunity to develop that awareness? Right. You see, the one-size-fits-all PD in districts doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work for our, 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 our students, then it sure as heck isn't going to work for the educators. And so to me, it's it, this is a situation where, you know, you have to um, approach it from what I always say is a multi-tiered, multifaceted perspective. One, what policy level, uh, what policy level things are in place, whether it's in a strategic plan or a board policy, what resources and supports are provided for the professional growth? How are you getting feedback that is responsive to that professional growth to Thank identify you. different individual needs for growth and support that extends beyond, again, one size fits all? Now, how do you support educators? If I, if I understand all the things, like, for example, the questions you and I are posing, what's going to happen when I say, okay, I understand all these things. These are some of the barriers that I uh, can anticipate, and these are the resources that I need. How are the, how are, you know, what policies are in place to ensure that those resources are provided as well? Yeah. Well, and I would say, you know, it's funny is whenever I talk about professional learning, there's like, so it's, it's just like so many of the things that we spend so much time talking about. When we talk about kids and students and their learning, and we don't necessarily like apply those things to teachers and their, their professional learning, but they need agency. They need a degree of autonomy. They should be able to choose lenses of interest. They need to be able to go at their own pace. And quite frankly, professional learning can't be relegated to a handful of days. It has to be woven into the fabric of their experience at school, or there's not going to be sustainable change on any of these different fronts that we're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, It's a lot. (laughs) Um, So I know you do a lot of work on cultural intelligence. So I first would love for you to just kind of give us a definition for how you define cultural intelligence when you're working with teachers, um, how you articulate the importance of cultural intelligence, and then how do you support teachers in developing their cultural intelligence when you get to work with them? Ah, perfect. And I'm glad you, that's a, that's another thing kind of piggybacking on even your previous question. And I'm glad you asked it this way. There's so much jargon, so many acronyms and so many, so much terminology. And yet I just noticed that a lot of folks don't even take the time to define it and then provide an example in context. Mm -hmm. So, so when I look at cultural intelligences, I define it as the following. It's developing a cultural awareness of the systems and institutions that we operate within, what cultural identifiers are attached to those systems, what cultural uh, mores and characteristics are centered within those systems, and how we reinforce those that can serve as a type of marginalization, subjugation, or oppression for those that aren't part of the dominant culture. And then once you have identified that, how do you engage in strategies that give you the opportunity to learn about the cultural identity of others and be able to engage in meaningful cross-cultural connections, whether it's in the ways in which you communicate, the resources that you provide, or the ways in which learning is represented? All right. So that I, I first of all, thank you, because I could not agree more. I think definitions are incredibly important to anchor ideas, and I agree with you. There's so many words and phrases thrown around that aren't clearly defined. So do you give teachers like an example to anchor this definition like at, at yes. the start of your work? Okay. Absolutely. So for example, it's my favorite metaphorical representation, uh, which I, you've probably heard of this, is uh, by Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop at the Ohio State University is the mirror's windows and sliding glass doors. Mm-hmm. And so for your audience, you, are you familiar with that? Yes. I am. Yes, I yeah. am. So for your audience, the whole idea around that is, and it, it's usually attached to the text that uh, learners consume. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea is that I should be able to engage in a learning experience or, or consumption of text that serves as a mirror, which means that I can connect to my reading either through the protagonist and or the author from an authentic perspective that affirms who I am and what my cultural identity is. 
I then, once I have a better understanding of myself, I then be able to engage in a learning endeavor that serves as a window, which means I learn about the cultural identity of an other, a person whose identity isn't aligned with mine in, in for whatever degree, or a protagonist who isn't aligned with mine. And then in some cases, I'm able to engage in a learning endeavor that allows me to put myself into their lived experience shoes, if you will, so that I broaden my perspective and have and develop higher degrees of both empathy and compassion for their perspective because our experiences are different. Where I expand upon that with the cohorts I work with is that it should not be limited to our text. It should be across all of our content areas and embedded within all of our learning endeavors. My big thing is the following. If you have a definitive group that has a quote-unquote designated month, that means that they are not normalized within the curriculum. And part of what you want to do is begin to dismantle that by way of incorporating authenticity and voices in the standardized curriculum or in, in the regular curriculum. And those months serve as an accumulative celebration of what you've already been studying. Mm -hmm. So the, for me, on a personal level, the fact that my own history is relegated to February and, 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 and Carter Woodson wanted Black History Month to be in February primarily because of the volume of significant Black historical figures whose um, birthdays occurred in February. But if you relegate my history to only February, then I already know what's going to happen. You're going to learn about Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. You might get a little Frederick Douglass. Uh, and that's probably about it. And so what it does is it not only oversimplifies and, and um, um, uh, essentially um, limits what you're going to learn, but you don't have it in context with anything else you've ever learned throughout the whole school year. And so the whole idea around that is Whatever the content area is, I always ask educators, what voices are you including that will serve as a mirror window and sliding glass door? So I'll give you a prime example of what I did recently. Okay. I worked with a group in Canada and it was a group, it was a science teacher group. And I asked them, I said, here's one for you. And here's how you know what culture is centered, which is predominantly white culture and how First Nations culture is um, either marginalized or um, intentionally excluded from the curriculum. Ask all of your students to list their top five known um, Canadians uh, that has significant scientific accomplishments over the history of the country and ask them to list their top five First Nation scientists who've made significant contributions to the sciences over the course of Canadian history and watch what happens. Mm -hmm. And of course, that they all were like, oh, my God. And I'm like, now you know what voices you need to include within the curriculum. And I go, and, and part of that process of including those voices ideally will serve as a catalyst for your learning and deeper understanding, which means now for all of your First Nation students, when they're going to be seen and heard and affirmed, and for all the white students, they're going to learn about a First Nation scientist that may actually involve some element of something that they consume or, or something that they engage with. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to be looking at their First Nations classmates in a completely different and much more culturally affirming capacity. Oh, that's a great example. And, you know, I'm listening to you speak. And right before that example, I was thinking, gosh, I bet a lot of teachers kind of feel the frustration, especially those who are really heavily dependent on, you know, like a purchase curriculum or something that that isn't diverse, that doesn't include those voices, that doesn't shine a light on the contributions of a really diverse group of people. And yet, when I, when I think about what you're saying, the exciting part of having access to as much information and as many online resources as we have is, you know, we don't have to be limited by that in the way that I remember being limited when I first started teaching. Like, exactly. I, I remember having like the novel list and they said, you know, choose six books to teach. And my only two minority female authors were Maya Angelou and Amy Tan. And I'll let you guess of the six texts we read each year, which ones I had to go to the board and repeatedly stand up and defend because parents didn't want me teaching them. I was right. just like, really? Yeah, yeah doesn't surprise me. <laughs> And see, I'll give you a prime example for me in high school that's kind of aligned with what you're sharing. So here's and here's how it shows up. So I had AP American Lit in high school. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was struggling with trying to understand The Glass Menagerie by mm -hmm. Tennessee Williams. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget at one point, um, I had mentioned it to the teacher and his default response to me was, well, maybe you, and, and unfortunately, this is normalized. 
well, maybe you have a deficit in your reading comprehension and understanding, and maybe this isn't the right class for you. Oh my gosh. Thankfully, hat tip to my, my, my late father, mm-hmm. I had enough self-awareness, confidence, understanding, and conversational strategies to be able to not only self-advocate, but I responded to the teacher saying, no, if that's the case, then how do you explain the fact that I fully understand and connect with reading the autobiography of Malcolm X? Mm-hmm. Because my dad was having me read that at home. That was not assigned in school. Right. Now, here's the sad part. Many of my high school classmates know of that, for example, that example, and they had class with me. I can't tell you how many of my white classmates, first of all, I was the only black male student in AP American Lit, which goes back to system because they never bothered to examine why is it that the high school is 25% uh, black students, and yet the representations and honors in AP classes is two, mm-hmm. literally the number two. And I would, I would argue in a lot of school, you're still going to see that exact trend, right? You're going to see, you're still going to see. And because when I taught, I taught like a CP, which comes about, was kind of like a regular level, regular air quotes level uh, English course, and then an honors course. And the difference between those two populations was so, it was so extreme. Yeah. And, and, and keep in mind, I was in high school in the 80s, and it still exists. See, yeah. that's, that goes back to our conversation uh, or a little bit earlier about policy. You, you, something's wrong with what the humans are doing. So you either, and to me, it's a both hand, you either need to change the humans or change the policy. I personally think you change the policy and you require and support the professional learning growth of the humans. Mm-hmm. But my main point with that story is the fact that, that many of my high school classmates who have gone off to college, Ivy Leagues and all those other things, they've told me, they're like, I feel like I missed out because that is something that would have been a value to me as well Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in high school. And that goes back to the mirrors and windows. See, they had lots of mirrors. I didn't have any windows. My only windows, or excuse me, I had lots of windows and no mirrors. Right. My only mirrors, well, my dad had me read at home. Hmm. How much more rich would our cross-cultural dialogue have been had that class introduced texts that were Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, James mm-hmm. Baldwin, Mal- uh, you know, autobiography of Malcolm X. I remember wanting to read, I remember asking the, uh, the teacher, how come we aren't reading Langston Hughes? And I'm like, and if you decide to do it, don't relegate it to February. Right, right. And he was like, well, it's not part of the core curriculum. It's not part of the canonical texts. And I'm like, but that's a problem. <laughs> so again, if you don't have those experiences, and you and I are using example of text, but I can point to examples across the entire curriculum. I brought it up with a group of math teachers. I even said, do you know who designed our United States Capitol building? And they're like, no. And I said, I'll give you a hint. It was a a black mathematician. And part of the reason why you don't even know that is because black history is relegated to February. Right. And I said, Google Benjamin Banneker. And I go, and and, and, uh, this last February, I had some teachers that were in my cohorts that were like, okay, it's Black History Month. I know how you feel about it, Ken. What can I do this differently? And I said, well, why don't we approach it from a learner empowerment and inquiry perspective? Because going to your point, the technology, I always say technology democratizes access to information and narratives. We need to be using it for learner empowerment as well as our own growth of it and, and empowerment. I said, here's the question. Now, here's my inquiry question that I would ask you to utilize with all of your students. I want you to take the time to do the research to identify everything you do over the course of a day and a week and see if you can trace something you do to the invention, accomplishment, or introduction of a significant Black historical person. And I said, and it doesn't even have to be significant. And so so that's the question they posed. And so I would tell the teachers, I said, The first one that they won't even realize that I will give away is every time you're in a car and you're at an intersection, the stoplight, that's Garrett Augustus Morgan. Oh, wow. Yes. See that? Yes. And so, and I said, now, if you want to continue on, Garrett Augustus Morgan invented the, the, um, the yellow light of the stoplight, but he's most known for inventing a breathable mask, which is a mask that is used by, uh, firefighting personnel. Wow. And so I said, just, I would pose that question. I said, what that does is you are now, again, how do we dismantle? Um, You are now not relegating 
the, in this case, Black history to the same prominent figures, which limits the narrative, limits access to narrative, but you're doing it from an empowering perspective to encourage all the students. I want you to explore what is all the things that you do and how does how does that connect to the accomplishment or the invention uh, of a Black person? Oh my gosh, I love that. Because then it's like a deep dive and it's driven by things they're curious and interested in. And then they're going to have this appreciation and learn things that it wouldn't have popped up in texts or whatever they encounter in February, right? It's Instead, Correct. it's like, this is woven through the entire year. And now we're going to celebrate this with this student-led inquiry. Oh, I love that. And that goes even to the other texts. So for example, if I'm a science teacher, let's say I'm covering a concept of physics. Anytime a name is mentioned, my question, the question I always encourage educators to ask is, okay, here's a name that we know with this. What are all the other names that might be associated with this that we don't know? What other representation can we connect to this? Right. Well, and I think about, you know, history, like teaching history right now. And it's just like, it, just perspective taking to like challenging kids. Like, okay, this is the, this is the interpretation of this story that we're hearing, the story of history. Let's assume a different perspective. Let's dig into that. Like, I think there's so many ways to, to do this in a meaningful and really relevant, interesting way for kids. Right. Oh, I, I love it. Um, okay. I know we're getting close to our hour, and I just want to end, as I always do, by asking you to share something that you found helpful. It can be professionally, personally, to create more balance in your life. And I'll be honest with you, Ken, I'm really just trying to learn from all the amazing people I get to talk to because I feel like I'm constantly struggling with balance. So how do you strive to create more balance in your work and or work like personal life? I mean, that's a good question. It's an important question. I mean, for me, uh, which I always I've actually normalized at the beginning of many of my keynotes. Um, I, I asked the question of all the educators, you know, put in the chat or please share with your neighbor one thing you've done over the last month uh, that you've engaged in, if you will, that you would identify as self-care. Uh, and so for me, the first step is the awareness. It goes, it's part of the dialogue that you and I've had for this whole time. The first step is awareness. It's being aware of, you don't want to, in other words, you don't want to get bogged down in the minutia of your day-to-day -day activities and normalize things that can be self-destructive or that create myopia. So the self-care piece is anything. And, and to me, there's no value. There should be no value placed on what you do for self-care. It's are you engaging in self-care? Mm. Uh, and so for me, it's been things like, you know, the fortunate uh, opportunity I have to go to the gym and exercise, um, going on walks, making sure I enjoy going outside. Um, again, going back to even my reference to stereotype threats, I, I shared with one of my cohorts that I, I finally have been able to get back out and go surfing. Oh, neat. And, and they, and they, and I always get the, uh, the eyebrow raises. I'm like, yes, black men can surf. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I learned to surf at the age of 13. Now I'm not so great. I. Yay. There you go. See? Okay. So I'm going to add, see, there's a prime example, your reaction going back to the cross-cultural connection. That's something you and I could say, Hey, here's a common denominator that we have. The next time we're, or if we're ever in an opportunity to do it, you and I are going to go surfing together. See that? Mm -hmm. And and that doesn't happen if you don't engage in in dialogue in the first place. But but again, the the balance piece for me is really just that. It's it's the self care. Are you, you know, I, I I really really want to reject. And this goes to the policy thing. I want educators to reject bringing work home and working over the weekends. Yeah, answering emails at eight or nine o'clock at night. Um, but but. But also attaching that, you know, asking things like, are you mindful of the fact that when you assign homework, you are essentially asking children to work an extra unpaid shift uh, mm -hmm. in an environment that you have no control over the resources they have access to, and you don't know what the environment is? Why not encourage students to, I don't know, do nothing and hit the reset button, <laughs> you know, but, but it's also with educators, you can't pour from an empty cup. And if you don't hit the reset button, how can you be there for your students? But also, how are you encouraging students to hit the reset button as well? So, so for me, and tying with your question, it's really being mindful of when I feel like my stress level is becoming elevated, my anxiety level is becoming elevated, and what am I doing to be able to 
divert my thinking or my um, my immediate actions to something else that essentially is the equivalent of me being able to hit the reset button. And there is and nothing is off the table. Mm-hmm. No, I I love that. It, it is my it does start with mindfulness. And I love your point about not taking stuff home. That is such an undercurrent of my messaging about why teachers are so exhausted and burnt out. But the same thing that you're saying about kids is true too. Like I just talked with Matt Miller about this, and and I have you know given our conversations today about equity. I have some real concerns, like you're kind of alluding to, about the fact that when we send all this work home, we're making a lot of assumptions about the environment, the level of support. And then, yeah, we're not giving kids a chance to just have a break and like go outside themselves and go on a walk or go to the gym or just decompress. So I love that that's how we're ending this conversation. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was a real treat to get to talk with you today. Pleasure was all mine. The treat's mutual and it's nice to hear your voice. So thank you for having me. Yeah, you too, Ken. conversation for me really points to the importance of policy level work. There are so many systematic challenges in education, so many built-in inequities in education that need to be addressed. And a lot of that work has to happen at a policy level and then also at a school site at the leadership level. But as educators, thinking about the things that we can do, I really think that the, the conversation Ken and I had about continuing our learning and being open to challenging our own biases and figuring out why do we interact with people in the way we do? How might we think about those interactions differently? Um, all of that work is ongoing. And as Ken said in the program, there is no finish line, right? There's always room to grow. There's always room to develop in these areas. And, and I really want teachers to think of themselves as lead learners. And that learning isn't just relegated to our curriculum, pedagogy. It really spills into all of these other aspects of our work, like cultural intelligence and really thinking about what aspects of our work with students do we need to be taking a closer look at. I also love this idea of really thinking about the voices that show up in our curriculum. Who are we highlighting? Who are we having kids learn about? And if there are voices, if there are people, if there are groups absent from that curriculum, how are we pulling it in? And how are we creating meaningful experiences around those contributions from people who aren't classically, you know, identified and included in our curriculum. And I love the suggestion that, you know, maybe as a way to celebrate something like, you know, uh, Black History Month, we have kids really think about what are the contributions that have impacted my daily life from a particular group of people. And I'm going to dig in and research and learn about it and really develop a, a higher sense of appreciation and awareness about the contributions of a really wide variety of people. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and with different language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes.